Please stand for the reading of God's word. And let's turn in our New Testaments to Revelation chapter 6. As you may remember, hopefully from our Revelation study in Sunday school, Apostle John uses very freely imagery from the Old Testament. Or should we say the Holy Spirit um, gave John visions that echoed very clearly visions that he also gave the Old Testament prophets and inspired John to record those visions in such a way that we would see those parallels very clearly. Um, And yet, not all the parallels are exact. These images come with changes, modifications of various kinds. So, uh, without wanting to indicate that Revelation 6 has the same meaning as Zechariah chapter 1, we are going to read it as for a point of comparison and context, since there is some overlap, especially when you get to the fifth seal and that question of the martyrs that we'll hear them ask. So we're going to read Revelation 6, verses 1 through 11. Before we read, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, open our hearts now to receive your word, we pray, and we ask that it would be uh, clear and powerful uh, through the Holy Spirit's work among us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Amen. Let's turn back in the scriptures to Zechariah chapter 1. Zechariah 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, 
The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, How long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered, Gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these coming to do? He said, These are the horns that scattered Judah, so no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah, to scatter it. Amen. You may be seated. When the news broke a few weeks ago about the surprise attack by Hamas against the Israelis. Uh, One of the first things that all the news outlets were reporting on was how surprising it was uh, that the Israelis didn't see this coming. 
there were headlines about this being a, a great lapse of Israeli military intelligence. How could something so big be in the works and, and the Israeli intelligence community um, either didn't know it or if they did, the right people didn't pay attention to that intelligence and act on it. Everybody loves a good spy story. And if you think about it, there are actually uh, quite a number of good spy stories in the Bible, um, in Bible history. Zechariah chapter 1 contains an example of a, a kind of spy story in visionary form in Bible prophecy. One thing the Bible is very clear about is that there are no lapses of intelligence for the Lord. There's never a time when the Lord doesn't see what's coming. It's caught by surprise. The Lord knows all. He sees all, all the time. And therefore, what is he able to do? Therefore, he is able to care perfectly for his people without being surprised by unexpected developments. That's going to be pictured for us in a very vivid way in the first of Zechariah's visions that we'll look at tonight. Um, But first we're going to go over uh, the opening oracle in verses 1 through 6, which I'm going to label with the heading, an an unsavory past. An unsavory past. Then in the second place, I'll try to explain this vision of the four horsemen in verses 7 through 17, which will give the heading, an uneasy peace. And then we'll uh, wrap up with the second vision of the four horns and the four craftsmen, which I'm going to call an unexpected plan, an unexpected plan, verses 18 to 21. Okay, so first, the opening oracle. Remember from our study of the book of Ezra, the first six chapters of Ezra, that Haggai and Zechariah prophesied at the same time in the city of Jerusalem. Haggai and Zechariah were kind of a dynamic duo. They came on the scene about the same time. It was when the work on the temple construction had stopped for a number of years. And it was Haggai and Zechariah then who who preached and encouraged the people, look, you need to take this work back up again. It was under their ministry that people were motivated to go back and, and faithfully complete the temple building. And so we should think of Zechariah in the same historical context as Haggai. This small remnant of the people of Judah who have returned from exile in Babylon. They they started building the temple uh, several years ago, but they got discouraged by opposition. But now, in response to uh, Haggai's prophecy in Haggai chapter 1, they have started it up again. Notice that this opening prophecy of Zechariah fits uh, chronologically right in the middle of Haggai chapter 2. Remember all the dates that we saw in Haggai? Um, Well, Haggai 2 and Zechariah 1 are both set in the second year of the Persian king Darius. Haggai 2 has has a prophecy from the seventh month at the beginning of the chapter, and then a prophecy from the ninth month at the end of the chapter. Zechariah 1, the first six verses are dated in the eighth month of that same year. So these prophecies go together. They sort of interlock in time. When you look at Zechariah chapter 1 as a whole... You can see this movement where Zechariah first looks at the past, then at the present, and then at the future. 
There's a past, present, future movement through the chapter. Verses 1 through 6, then, are about the past. And as I mentioned earlier, it is an unsavory past. Right off the bat, Zechariah begins, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. He's telling the people of Judah here in Jerusalem, Remember where you have come from. Remember what led up to the exile in the first place. And don't be like your fathers were who went into exile. Remember, there were prophets who came to them too. And I told them to repent, just like I'm telling you through these prophets Haggai and Zechariah to repent. You can look back at that history and you can see what happens when God's people don't listen to the prophets that God sends to them. They did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. And so what happened? Well, well, what the Lord's prophets warned would happen did, in fact, take place. Jerusalem was destroyed. The people were carried into exile. He says, your fathers, where are they? Verse 5. Well, they underwent the covenant judgment that the prophet said, warned them about. God's word came true. You might find it odd the way he follows up that question with this other one, and the prophets, do they live forever? Well, the prophets weren't in that same boat of rejecting God's word, right? Um, That's true. Zechariah is not comparing the prophets with the rest of the people in terms of their disobedience. It's more like he's saying, look, look, even though those prophets are gone, even though that whole generation is gone, you know, the, the good and the bad, the faithful and the unfaithful, all of that is in the past now, but what hasn't changed? It's the word of God. God's promises are still in effect. His word that he proclaimed back then is still coming true, is still unfolding into reality. Your fathers who came under the judgment are gone. The prophets who preached to them about the judgment are gone, for that matter, too. But what has lasted? What has stood the test of time? It is the word of God. It's his warnings about the exile and his promises about the future return, which is what they're experiencing right now. The prophets look forward to all of this, and now it's taking place. And so Zechariah is now telling the people, with that recent history vividly in the rearview mirror for you, you have a chance now to write a different story after the exile. Something different from what happened before. You have the chance to hear God's prophetic word in a different way. You're gonna your father's heard the prophetic word, you're hearing it also. But but you're hearing it with the benefit of hindsight, with the benefit of their example, their example of unbelief, their example of hard heartedness, their example of stubbornness. And the Lord is graciously coming to you now and he's saying, Now I'm talking to you. This is your time. I'm I'm giving you the chance to listen now. I'm giving you the chance to take my word to heart. Your fathers finally realized the need for this when it was too late. Yes, eventually, verse 6, they admitted, well, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. But Zechariah is saying, listen, you people now have the opportunity to experience the Lord being true to his word in a different way. 
you now, today, the Lord is exhorting, return to me. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts. And if you do, I will return to you. Open your hearts up. Receive my word. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves to listen to what the prophets are telling you. You don't, don't buck against it. Don't ignore it. Don't brush it off or dismiss it. Don't try to excuse yourselves. Don't get angry at what they're saying. Listen. Return to me. Now, if we pause for a second here, that's kind of a surprising and sobering way for Zechariah to lead off this prophecy. I don't know about you. I often am inclined, at least, to think about the returning exiles as kind of the good guys. Well, these these are the ones that God is letting back into the land after all that time of exile. And so we might assume that, well, well, they must be better somehow than the previous couple of generations. This group of people must have their, their act together. Of course, if you actually look at the history of Ezra and Nehemiah, the people of Judah living back in Jerusalem had all kinds of problems, one after another, one generation after another. They were not squeaky clean. They were not picture-perfect believers. In fact, they shared much more in common with the Judah 70 years earlier before the captivity than we might like to think. Surely more than they would have liked to think about themselves. Um, The same covenant was still in place with the same promises and the same warnings as always. And, And this remnant Oh, they were not magically somehow more naturally virtuous people than their ancestors. The need for God's people, both before and after the exile, and in fact, extending the application to ourselves, in every age of history, the need of God's people stays essentially the same in every age. It is to humble ourselves before God. It's to turn away from our sin. It's to turn in faith to depend on His promises and to listen to His warnings that are designed, they're there to keep us close to Him and away from the sin that will destroy us if it leads us away from Him. Okay, so that's the opening oracle. This kind of heading for everything else that's going to follow. But after verse 6, the kind of mode of Zechariah's prophecy is going to take a very different form for very much of the book. For most of the book, Zechariah is not going to be primarily in what you call telling mode. He's not going to be telling his prophecies. He's going to be more in showing mode. He's going to show. You know how they say a, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? Well, a word picture can have a similar effect. Uh, what comes to us, what come to us as word pictures through the prophet Zechariah started as picture pictures for the prophet himself, right? Zechariah is reporting here these visions that the Lord is giving to him. The Lord gives Zechariah a series of visions, and Zechariah describes those visions for us in these vivid visual um, word pictures. Here's what I saw. 
Here's what I heard. Here's what I experienced. Here's what it was like for me. And, and then often he'll give some kind of explanation. Um, now, he doesn't explain every element of every vision individually. And this is important for understanding how these visions work. The, the symbolic meaning or, or, or message really is to be found in the vision as a whole. Zechariah is saying, again, here's what I saw. And, and we're to try to, to take it in in the same way. Um, what is the meaning of this vision as a whole? Not necessarily this or that little component of the vision. Um, that's not to say the details aren't important. The details are important. The details make up the whole vision. Um, but, but they're important in the way they contribute to that single message of the whole vision, um, not these isolated details where, for example, I'm not going to tell you that the, the myrtle trees represent the tree of life and you know the four horses each have their own individual like significance. That's, there's just not enough in the text to, um, to warrant that. It's, uh, this is one place, I mentioned earlier uh, when we read from Revelation that there are both comparisons and contrasts between Zechariah's prophecy and the way some similar imagery appears in Revelation for the Apostle John. Um, in Revelation 6, each of the four horsemen that John mentions, uh, each one has its own symbolic value, its own symbolic meaning. Here in Zechariah 1, the, these four horsemen don't have four different meanings. They together have one meaning. One, they're one symbol taken together. I saw in the night, he says, and behold... A man riding on a red horse. Now, don't get too alarmed by that idea of a red horse. It's not like bright red, like Clifford the Big Red Dog or something. Um, the, the word for red there, it's just describing a normal horse color. This is not an abnormal, uh, bizarre-looking horse. It's a normal-looking horse. Some, some shade of brown um, that just comes over into English here is red. Uh, anyway, the, the, this rider, it says, was standing among the myrtle trees... In the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Again, these are normal horses, but here's the striking. They're, they're appearing under kind of mysterious circumstances. Okay, it's nighttime, for one thing. They are in a glen or, or a ravine. Uh, their translations put are uh, of some kind, some kind of, of low place of concealment, some place where they're not going to be easily seen. And they're also among these myrtle plants, so they're partially concealed by the myrtles. So the idea here is to give the impression of a covert operation. A covert operation. There are these horsemen out at night, undercover, on a mission. And their mission, we learn about in verse 10. These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. They are gathering intelligence, we could say. And they're gathering it in every direction. I, I, I think that's why there are four of them. They can go out north, south, east, and west, right? They can patrol the whole land. And when they do that, verse 11, what do they find out? Well, we have patrolled the earth. And behold, all the earth remains at rest. Okay, so let's think about this. You might say, why, why would... We believe God's omniscient, right? He's all-knowing. Why would the all-knowing God 
be sending out these angelic messengers far and wide to patrol the earth and bring back information, this intelligence about what's going on in the world. God's omniscient. If he knows everything everywhere all the time, he shouldn't need spies to go out and do this kind of work. And you're right, he doesn't. God doesn't need his creatures to do anything for that matter. And yet he chooses to work through his creatures, right? These angels, uh, in other words, they're not patrolling the earth because God would somehow be ignorant without them, like God's depending on them or flying blind uh, unless he gets the information from them, like, like an, uh, a human general um, would be. These angels and their mission is symbolic, of course. It's, it's revealing something to Zechariah. And through Zechariah to the people. It's, and here's what it's revealing. It's revealing that the Lord knows and takes a very active interest in what is happening on the earth in the lands surrounding Judah. The Lord knows and he takes an active interest in it. He's not careless about this state of affairs surrounding Israel. He's not ignorant. He's very aware And he's not just aware, he takes it very seriously. So seriously that he's sending these angelic spies to search it all out. Very active, very engaged is the Lord, as the leader of the heavenly armies. You notice how many times he's referred to in this chapter as the Lord of hosts. This is, he's he's the leader of the heavenly armies. The Lord is not absent and unconcerned. He's, He's active and engaged. Now, I gave this section the heading, An Uneasy Peace. In verse 11, the angels say, Well, we've patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. And you might think, well, that sounds great. That sounds like really good news. We like peace and quiet, right? Especially after all the violence that Judah had been through recently, the destruction of Jerusalem and all of the great upheaval and turnover of empires from Assyria to Babylon and now Persia and then internal conflicts within the Persian Empire, which had, uh, if you look at the history of the Persian Empire, some of those internal conflicts had just recently begun to settle down into a, a time of um, internal peace within the empire under Darius. And so this could sound like really good news. All the earth remains at rest. We finally are getting a break from all the warfare. There's another way to think about it from the perspective of Judah. To think back to the last chapter of Haggai. Just two months before this vision, back in the ninth month, Haggai prophesied to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, and he said, listen, the Lord is about to shake the heavens and the earth. And to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. So God has held out this hope to Zerubbabel and under him. He's held out this hope that the current state of global affairs is going to change radically one day by the Lord's almighty power. The empire and the kingdoms that seem so powerful right now, they are going to be shaken to the roots And that is going to be good news for Judah. Because it's going to lead to what? It's going to lead to the reign of the coming son of David in the last day's kingdom of God. 
So I hope you can see it when these angels go out patrolling and they come back and say, well, all the earth remains at rest. That might raise some questions for God's people. It's an uneasy piece. You can imagine them saying, it's quiet out there. Too quiet. That kind of thing. You know, It's not supposed to be quiet. God's supposed to be shaking the earth. When is this global earthquake going to take place to shake the nations like he said he's going to do? And so in verse 12, the original leading angel, he intercedes for Judah. He cries out to God and he says, Oh, Lord of hosts, how long? How long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? When are your promises finally going to come true about those last days, blessings for your people and judgment on the nations that the prophets have been talking about? It's It's expressing this realization that the last days are not here yet. We've gotten back from exile, yes, and that's good. But this is falling short somehow of the the full triumphant return and restoration that the prophets have been teaching us to look forward to in the final future. This is not it. So let's look at how the Lord replies to this plea. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. He says, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. And then he goes on to say, and in fact, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. In other words, the promises have have begun to come true. What's the evidence of that? What is the beginning of that fulfillment? Well, to a large degree, it's the temple that's, in the, in, that's being built, that's under construction right now. And he's, he's telling people, as you watch the temple getting built, you are seeing right there in Jerusalem, right now, this concrete expression of the presence of God taking shape among you. And yes, it's true that the final future is not here yet. That final victory over the nations, that final elevation of the kingdom of God on earth. But, as you watch the temple going up, that temple construction is a concrete guarantee. It's a reassurance from the Lord that my cities shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Things are on the right track. The fulfillment has begun even though a greater fulfillment is certainly yet to come. This leads us then straight into the second vision of the four horns and the four craftsmen. Uh, You should know that horns in Old Testament times, you mentioned like the horns of an animal. Uh, horns represented power in, in visual imagery. And in Bible prophecy, they often represent powerful nations or kings. Um, the four horns in verses 18 and 19 then represent the nations who have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. It could be referring to four particular nations, maybe. It's also possible it just means nations in every direction. Again, like the four horses, north, south, east, and west. Nations all around, surrounding this little tiny land, this little tiny people of God, littler now than ever, that they are are just a remnant back from exile. They're surrounded by these four great horns of earthly power. 
So in response, you might expect that the Lord would next show Zechariah a vision of four even bigger and badder horns that are going to fight power with power. They say you shouldn't bring a knife to a gunfight, right? You've got to meet force with force. But that is not the next thing Zechariah sees, is it? That brings us to this unexpected plan of God. What is the Lord going to do to combat those four powerful kingdoms? And the Lord showed me four craftsmen. Four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these, the four craftsmen, have come to terrify them. To cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah. To scatter it. So in response to the destructive, tyrannical power of those surrounding nations, what is the Lord going to do? He's going to build something. He's going to build something. And do you see how, once again, you think of the temple here that's under construction. You see how the temple is the Lord's answer to those threats surrounding Judah. And they might think, well, wait a second. We don't need a temple. We don't need craftsmen. We need weapons. We need warriors. But the Lord is intending to build something among his people and through his people. And they're going to participate in this. They are in the middle of participating in it. They're going to build something by God's grace, something that means for them as his people, that means ultimate security. That means ultimate safety. That means, uh, furthermore, ultimate power. Because again, what does the temple represent? What does it mean? It represents God's own presence and power among them, dwelling with them. Okay, so as we take in these, these kind of luscious and kind of overwhelming word pictures, these visions... And we see them in their historical context for the returned exiles. We've got to force ourselves to that next step and think, okay, so what does this mean for us? So Zechariah had these visions, and maybe we're starting to see the significance that they had for that generation. But, but what, what do we do with this? Well, first of all, let's think a little bit about some of the similarities between God's people living in Zechariah's time and our time. This is something commentator Ian Duguid brings out really helpfully, I think. Um, there they are in Jerusalem, very small, not very powerful. And they have all of these promises from God about this future that he has in store. But for them, there is a, a gap. There has always been a gap for God's people, between those future promises and their living present. In Zechariah's day, the promises had started to come true, but they were not yet completed. The people were living in between. 
promise, and fulfillment. Now, here, resurrection, two and a half millennia later, um, we're a little bit further along, aren't we? A lot further along. We're much further along down the road of salvation history. And for us, many things that these people were looking forward to as yet future have in fact happened. The final future has dawned. Christ has in fact come. And he has shaken the nations. Pentecost is a great example of that. Christ is reigning in heaven now as the son of David. His kingdom is growing on the earth. And yet there's still a gap, isn't there? We look around us and we think, but the world in rebellion against the Lord still looks pretty powerful. And we might might think like the martyrs in Revelation 6, echoing the angel on his horse in Zechariah 1. How long, O Lord? How long until the promises come finally and fully true? Through the prophecy of Zechariah, the Lord is reassuring us tonight, as he reassured Zechariah and his countrymen back then, with words of comfort. He's reassuring us, I do care, I do see, the promised future is coming, it is on its way, and in fact, it has already begun If only you can see that with the eyes of faith. As I'm showing it to you in my word. I have in fact come. The Lord would remind us. Christ has in fact lived and died. And risen from the dead for sinners. Christ is reigning from heaven. And yes that reign. Is something we have to see. Now with the eyes of faith. But we know he is reigning. He is with us. And his promises are coming to life among us even now as we wait for that promised future through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ bringing his presence to bear in the life of the church and in the salvation of sinners and in the new life that he has given to us and the forgiveness of sins and the life-giving power, that resurrection life that's helping us to die to sin, live to righteousness The new creation has sprung to life. The kingdom of God is growing and thriving. It's like that grain of mustard seed. It's the tiniest of the seeds, and it grows slowly, but then it takes over the garden. It's like that leaven. It's the tiniest little bit. You put it in the dough, but it spreads and it rises. You don't see it working, and yet it does work. It expands with power. So in the meantime, like the people in Zechariah's day, were being called, in a sense, to wait, right? To wait for the fuller revealing of God's promises in the end. But what Zechariah's doing is he's giving us insight as we wait into what the Lord is doing in the meantime. In particular, 
It's this, in response to the horns. And we think about those horns in our day. Think about powerful nations. We can think about powerful armies. Think powerful leaders. We can think beyond that. We can think of all of the great centers of power that surround us as the people of God. Political ones, military ones, cultural ones. Everything in the world that's arrayed against the Lord and arrayed against his kingdom, we feel surrounded by these things so much of the time. What is Zechariah telling us that God is doing in the midst of that? What is God calling us to do in response to those horns of power surrounded, surrounding the people of God? That is the message of the craftsman. It's a message for us tonight as it was a message in Zechariah's own day. What is the Lord doing in response to those horns? The Lord is building something. He is building something right here among us at Resurrection OPC. And not only is he building something, he is calling us to build something, to enter into that labor of his, to labor with love in the work and the mission of his kingdom. As we work to make him known, as we serve one another, as we listen to his words, we follow his word in our congregation, in our families, in our vocations, in our neighborhoods. The Lord is building something. He is building his church. And the Lord Jesus has promised, hasn't he, that the gates of hell, think the horns of hell, those, that power of the devil and all of his works, will not prevail against it. Why? Because the Lord is building his temple on earth, and nothing is going to stop it. And that is a hopeful and comforting thing to be a part of. As we wait and we watch for the day when the Lord will again comfort Zion once and for all. This is what the Lord is doing now. Right here. Among us. Among you. In your home in your church, in the church throughout the world, the Lord is building something. That's something very exciting to be a part of. And there's a great comfort for the people of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you have made us part of your great temple building work on earth. And we ask that you would help us to see with the eyes of faith this this, this vision of your keen interest and awareness and active engagement with um, uh, the present of our lives. Help us to learn from the past of your people, to be motivated to listen with faith and humility to your word today. And Help us also to look forward with hope to your promise of a final future yet to come, to wait for it with patience, and in the meantime, to engage with zeal and gratitude and energy in that building project that you've made us a part of by your grace. We're so thankful to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.